Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson. I'm in conversation with Robert Madeline. Robert Madeline is a former Director General in the European Commission for many years standing, most recently in the area of technology as Director General of DG Connect. And this is part of a, an occasional series of what has the UK ever done for the European Union? So, Robert, you, unlike many of your colleagues and your peers from the British Civil Service, you, you actually went to the European Commission from the British Civil Service, having spent 10 years in Whitehall and five years or so in the UK permanent representation. So you, had a, you have a different maybe reference point. So how was it for you when you joined the Commission, having had this quite long career already in Whitehall? What, what first thing struck you about being a civil servant in the European institutions as opposed to the UK civil service? So I think the, f- the first and most visible difference was the existence of the, of the political staff of the cabinet system, right. which I had seen in France when I was there uh, detached to the French civil service for a sabbatical year, but which at the time in, in London was completely heretical. Now with the SPAD system, probably everybody yes. does much the same thing. The second difference, I think, was the the difference between the oral and written command. In Whitehall, if you picked up the phone, it was just for a chat, and when you knew what you wanted, you wrote it down. Whereas in the commission, working in a commissioner's staff, when you wrote it down, people assumed you were just putting it on the record, and it was only when you phoned up that they took it seriously. So you went, of course, to the commission, first of all, working for Leon Britton, so Leon Britton um, as the commissioner for trade at the time, correct? So both you and he were, were new to the, kind of the European way of doing things. How long did it take you and your fellow cabinet members and Sir Leon, um, as the commissioner for trade, to get used to the European way of doing things, as it were? That's an interesting question. And I think he himself often said, Leon said, that you know, people who do well in national systems sometimes flounder in Brussels and people who flounder at home sometimes take to the water well in Brussels. So it's different and you have to pick up the differences. Uh, Leon had already uh, done one term as the competition commissioner. So he and most of his cabinet knew how Brussels worked. I was new to the commission, but I'd been at the UK perm rep for five years. He had one, uh, I would say, Brussels outsider as his chef de cabinet, but the rest of the team was pretty experienced. This series, as you may know, is, is trying to gauge, and there's no right or wrong way of, of, of answering this, of the extent to which uh, the UK made, has made over its past 46 years of membership of the European Union uh, a positive contribution to the European project, as it's called, where it's been uh, pioneering maybe areas of, uh, of policy making that it wants to particularly champion, where it's been obstructive, where it's been more of a team player going along with the uh, member states in other areas which were maybe a key priority for them but in very broad terms when you joined the commission and, and you spent you know, many many years there after the working for Leon Britain um, how did the UK make its presence felt how did the UK it was a rather large member state obviously um, try to sort of influence like all member states do uh, the policy making process and the setting of priorities inside the European Commission from the outside The first thing I think that that you can see if you're in a cabinet is the strength of a personal relationship between a commissioner and the head of government of the country they know best. So Leon took very seriously his role uh, explaining to Number 10 why they should be taking a pro-European accommodating stance. And there was obviously a Conservative government at the time. And there was a Conservative government at the time. So, So I think that was an important role. Equally... There was a happy coincidence where his internationalist 
uh, optimistic and let's move faster attitudes sat with what I think the UK government wanted at the time in terms of faster enlargement, a more active and positive engagement with Asia, a rapid completion of the uh, Uruguay round to create the World Trade Organization, get China in there, complete the single market. The whole agenda that the tail end of Delors was pushing, because it was the third Delors presidency of the Commission, aligned very well with London. So this was the UK as a catalyst. So it was building on maybe uh, 10 years earlier, where, where Lord Cofield was Commissioner of the Single Market. So it was where the British commissioners of the party of government, by maybe coincidence, whether it's Arthur Cofield or Leon Britton, uh, were very much pushing something that the government of the day in, in London very much wanted to, to push. Exactly. And at that time, remember, there were two British commissioners, and on the other right. side of the street, you had in particular Neil Kinnock, also with highly skilled British-sourced cabinets, running one of the most important reform processes that the administration of the Commission had known since its foundation. And from your experience, uh, the UK has, has, has historically has been particularly good at championing a cause. So <clears throat> the creation of a real European Union global foreign policy right. was the, I, I believe, strongest legacy starting with Christopher Soames. It's not by accident. The very first British Commissioner. Absolutely. So the very first British Commissioner, but not right at the beginning of the European Commission. But it wasn't by coincidence that he decided that we needed a delegation in, in Beijing, we needed a delegation in Washington, we needed a delegation in Japan. And the first staff of those delegations was often former either Department of Trade, Board of Trade, or Foreign mm. Office diplomats doing their stuff in those places. If you go through as far as the Leon Britton era, the, the parallel then is setting up the Europe-Asia meetings, 94-95, mm. bringing China into, in a way, the sort of uh, the College of Nations through its membership of the World Trade Organization. That's unfinished business, but they're there. Um, pushing to get enlargement done in an optimistic way. So I think that that global foreign policy open to the world is a very important legacy. It's not to say that the UK is the only internationalist mm -hmm. member state, far from it, but there was a happy coincidence there. The second piece, if you look at administrative reform, mm -hmm. and the Commission now has published three uh, heavy volumes of history of the Commission, um, the first British commissioners brought not only the English language, mm. without which the Eastern European colleagues would find it hard to work today, but the sort of Whitehall tradition of minuting meetings, sharing mm. records, and, and there's quite a lot of administrative culture there that has come in. And that didn't happen before? That hadn't happened before. Right. And then uh, the second thread there, I think, is the uh, Kinnock reform process, which in when Neil Kinnock was in charge when of Neil institutional Kinnock, reform. Yeah, so Neil Kinnock was in charge of, of, of the administration and changed the recruitment and career paths in a way which uh, made the system resilient for um, the membership, the rapid expansion from, from the Union of 15 to the Union of 27 with Central and East Europe. How much of a battle was it, given the, the, maybe the reaction of France in particular, but maybe other Francophone member states, to the idea that English now is going to become, in effect, the, the main working language? So I think one of the important things is that the, the, the key British actors within this commission have always been uh, fluently francophone, brilliantly. 
uh, sometimes with a very marked English accent, no, somebody like not. David Williamson as yeah. the Secretary General, mm -hmm. flawless French. Mm -hmm. And so it was not an attempt by uh, monoglot Brits to impose English, mm -hmm. but a lot of talk about using English had predated UK membership. Oh, really? Um, and I think what you could see was that it, until, let's say, when, when the Finns and Swedes joined, that was when you really couldn't assume in a, in a senior official discussion in the Commission that everybody understood French. Right. And since then, it's, in a way, got worse. Mm -hmm. I think that's a pity. I think you do need more than one working language. Right. Uh, so, and I think the French, for the Francophone nations, certainly continue to work hard on maintaining French. But English is the, uh, the lingua franca for, for the international elites today. So let's, if you can find an example, I'm not forcing you, but where an example where the UK, frankly, in its 46-year-old history of membership of the EU, has been a, an obstructive partner. Well, I, I, I honestly have to say that in my fields of operation, I have not really come across such things. Okay. But the one area I think I could mention is where the UK underperforms as a partner. In the food regulation field, right. um, the UK public opinion tends to assume that British food systems are very highly regulated and safe. Mm -hmm. And that's relatively true. But as the occasional scandal demonstrates, the devolution of power to Welsh, Northern Irish, Scottish food safety authorities and the strength of judicial review combine to make the food safety inspectorate system weaker in the UK than in other places. Okay. And there was one famous unhappy occasion where the European Commission had to ban the export to the rest of Europe of a particular cheese factory in the UK mm -hmm. because the Food Standards Authority agreed it was a problem but were not prepared to take action. So could I assume therefore whether in most cases you're saying or in some key areas to be more precise the UK was a champion, a not a pioneer but championing particular issues like tracing a market alongside other um, similarly minded member states not on its own uh, there were not too many negative areas where they were kind of blocking progress and, and for the rest they were just happy to go along and be, as I said earlier, a team player like other member states? So I, I think yes. Again, I can, here I'm consciously speaking from personal experience. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. out on the wing, you know, what did the Brits do about defence? Yeah. That's a problem. What did they do about um, justice and home affairs, that's a problem. But these are not problems I have personal knowledge of. So, right. yes, they exist. Right. But in the core business that Britain and Europe worked together on from first membership, yeah. uh, the Brits tended to play the game and tended to go with the flow. If anything, we got into trouble for trying to push Europe to go too fast. Mm. I mean, notoriously around enlargement, mm. Mm. Uh, also around the expansion of global trade rules. Yes. So we were very much pushing for services to be covered, for investment, for mm. intellectual property, and for investment we still haven't won, let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, so trying to go too fast, yes. Uh, blocking, pretty rarely. All right. Well, let's bring this now to the present day in the last part of this conversation, Robert. Uh, let's assume for the sake of argument that the UK will leave the European Union, possibly on the 31st of October this year, possibly later, but they'll be out of the, out of the club. What will be different? What, how will things change uh, in the internal dynamics of the EU as a result of the UK's departure? I think that the most important change will be one of the 
most granular grassroots changes. I mentioned already food safety. In areas such as food safety or medicine regulation, Mm -hmm. the system depends on a huge number of experts working pretty much for free uh, together across Europe. There will be an immediate departure of UK expertise, which represents a pretty big chunk Mm -hmm. of these networks for the European Medicines Agency, for the Food Safety Authority. Um, Recruiting other people will be a non-trivial challenge, and that will be a huge loss to the UK and to the EU of 27 to not have this networking. And I think it's one of the uh, errors of the management of the Brexit process, that on neither side was there a willingness to ring fence, preserve at least for a a decade or so, the right to participate. That's a huge loss. And in areas, as you know, there's the, well, starting to hear commentary to the effect, whether you, whichever side of the debate you're on, that there's a real prospect, danger, likelihood, depending on where you're coming from on the story, to uh, that the EU post-UK departure will be more protectionist, be more prone again to, to, to regulate or re-regulate. Are those, are those uh, concerns, if they are concerns, justified? So uh, when I was doing trade negotiations, we, we definitely had a sort of Northern Liberal caucus the Brits, the Dutch, the Swedes, the Germans. And clearly there are other countries who, for different reasons, take a different view at the margin. Do we need more liberalisation or not? I think that in the the post-exit period, the European Union will have to avoid having a sort of phantom limb, uh, what I call a phantom limb period, where they think, what do we do now that we've lost the Brits? Yes. The real question is, what is in the interest of the EU27? And I actually think, if you look at the evolution between the the 90s of the last century and now, in, for example, textile and agriculture policy, Mm -hmm. you can see that the things that used to make Europe hesitant about international liberalisation have actually gone away. The, the, The legacy of domestic support is now at a level which we can defend vis-a-vis our American friends. And so I think that the reasons to be um, defensive are much less strong than they were, and the reasons to be offensive are much stronger than they were. So I I actually think the EU27 starts today from a different place than it was in in the 70s. Maybe one final question then, Robert, and it's slightly outside the ambit of our theme of this discussion, but from the UK perspective, the governmental perspective, never mind the private sector, They'll be, they'll be out of the EU, they'll be outside the room, or the rooms in the plural, where decision-making is taking place, policy-making is being, is being formed. How, how will the UK, whether it's government and its agencies or, and or the private sector, all sorts of players, including civil society, of course, how will, they make their, how will they get to know what's going on since they're not in the room, and how will they be able to make their influence felt? So I think you mentioned civil society. There is a huge... Uh, counter-cyclical investment needed to recreate and revalidate the networks that existed between the UK and other European countries before membership. If you think about something like environment, um, bird protection, uh, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds goes back to before the First World War. It has always had global networks, but those networks have begun to flow through Europe Mm. because Europe has been the relevant level of decision-making. Now they will have to reinvent a new relationship. 
Similarly, I mentioned British experts. Yes. It would be crazy to say British experts write out American and Japanese experts might come in. So we need to reinvent a, a reasonable way to allow both sides to keep some networking at expert level. And then I think it comes down to intergovernmental diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Um, Britain has quite big, grand embassies in all mm-hmm. the 27 member states yeah. and will be using them. What, what we don't have is university-to-university connections and mm-hmm. that sort of thing needs to be strengthened again. Okay. We have to leave it there. So Robert Madeleine, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure.